0: Hello and welcome to the Leaders Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a cloudy day here in the capital as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Chaloner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's program by Phil Juniper. Phil is the managing director of Vocational Skill Solutions, a provider of vocational and bespoke training and development programs. Phil, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the program today.
1: Oh, that's absolutely fine. It's uh, nice to uh, speak to
0: you. It's a real pleasure having you join us as well, Phil. Now, um, the purpose of this discussion is to establish, first and foremost, your take on leadership. So, if we dive straight in by taking that word leader aside for a moment and just exploring that, I'm interested yeah. to understand what that word means to you. What should a leader be in your eyes?
1: Uh, so I think a leader, uh, in my eyes, is somebody who, who leads from the front, uh, So, sort of sets, sets examples, and um, and allows uh, the staff to to have autonomy to make their own decisions, learn by the mistakes, guide them, nurture them, and um, and allows them to 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 spread their wings and, and express themselves as uh, as as leaders themselves, really. Because you know, throughout the business, um, you know, every every um, line of management should be should be leading their teams. So uh, so you know, from a leader from the top. Um, you know, you need to, to set those examples and allow people to um, to to lead their own teams under your guidance and um, and sort of um, leadership, really.
0: Exactly, and get considering that. Vocational Skills Solutions is a specialist in apprenticeships and pre-employment training. I suppose nurturing people and encouraging them to take on their own form of leadership is really a speciality of yours. But in the context yeah. of you being at the helm and running the uh, the business, how would you mm. describe your own sort of personal people management style in that sense?
1: Uh, so people management, I, I uh, have an open door policy. Um, I allow people to, to come up with their, their ideas and, and suggestions. Uh, we're reactive to to change, so uh, you know I'm not I'm not somebody who who leads by saying it's you know it's this way or the highway. I'm very much um, open to suggestions and and allow um, my my leadership and management team to own, if you like, the uh, their their departments and and uh, you know allow them to sort of uh, to to nurture their teams. Really, but uh, as a manager, as a leader, I I show people the way. I, I will suggest um, the best ways, the best methods. I'll let them lean on me from from my experience, and um, you know, I think allowing somebody to have that autonomy and um, take ownership, you get their immediate buy-in. And once you've got somebody's buy-in, then you'll you'll always get the best out of you out of your teams. If you if you lead by um you know, this is how we do it and you know, there's no other way, this is the way we do it, then you, you, you automatically switch switch teams off and um and, and a lot of the time they won't they won't react to that whereas you get them to, to make their own decisions and get their buy in for that, then it becomes a more fluid leadership team more responsive.
0: And thinking about the need to be responsive, that's certainly been uh, the case um, and the context of the here and now, hasn't it, with COVID-19, the need for business leaders uh, to adapt and be flexible to meet those uh, particular challenges. Um, so for yourselves, um, especially a company that's been enjoying, especially 300% growth between 2018 and 2019, um, how mm. has it been adapting to the uh, the challenges that the pandemic has brought about? Has it sort of put the brakes on in a certain sense?
1: No, I mean you know, we we predominantly work with um with unemployed people, getting them back into work. That's our our main business. Um so, you know, we've really we've seen an increase in, in business um through through the pandemic. Uh we've obviously had our challenges in terms that we've had to switch our delivery from face to face classroom delivery to, delivery to um to online delivery and there's been quite a big investment in that and staff training and development and you know the recruitment of learners and stuff like that and changing courses to to online delivery remote delivery so they're they're really the challenges that we've had as a a result of COVID but um the business really has, has, has seen growth through the period um you know so we've been able to um to service our not only our vulnerable learners that we currently work with but also those learners that have um Recently been made redundant or furloughed as a result of COVID, so you know we've we've sort of been been there as a as a rescue arm really to to reskill people and uh, give them uh, give them the skills that they they need to uh, to find alternative employment or or change change trades entirely. Mm.
0: So certainly been busy, and I think there's going to be a further upsurge in demand for such services as we sort of get to grips with the um upcoming recession as well and um yeah. one thing um you mentioned there as well phil was of course the fact that a lot of provision has been moved to the online side of things during the uh, the lockdown period yeah. is that one of the sort of features of this time that you think could become a more sort of permanent way that the business mm-hmm. operates do you think that there'll be more of a shift towards the online side of things or will things sort of revert eventually back to that sort of classroom-based setting
1: yeah, I, th- I think it's, it's opened up, it's opened up our eyes really in terms of delivering online. Um, we, we, um really deliver to, uh, vulnerable people, so those that are furthest away from employment or hardest to reach. So a remote, uh, model or online model doesn't really work for those type of people, uh, just because, you know, they, they haven't got access to uh, computers or they haven't got access to internet. So, you know, it's quite a struggle really to, to, to deliver to those, uh, to those that are furthest away from employment or, are hardest to reach in those methods. So we've had to be quite innovative in how we collect information and how we deliver our training, whether it be by emails, telephone or, you know, uh, loaning out computers, loaning out tablets. Um, and that's, it's not really sustainable to, to deliver like that going forward. You, you're always going to have better. Better delivery um, when it's face to face. So I think going forward, we we obviously will we'll have a mix. We will continue to deliver online learning where we can, um, where where learners have access to to it, and we will obviously deliver classroom based as well. Uh, I suppose our focus at the moment is is ensuring that those learners that who that are furthest away from employment, those that are most vulnerable. Um, and not, are not pushed further away from, from the, uh, from the opportunities of skills. So, you know, it's a big surge, obviously, for people who have just been made redundant or, uh, are at risk of being made redundant and, and will fall foul of, of COVID in terms of, you know, the, the damage to the economy. Um, and by bringing that surge of people in who are, uh, recently unemployed, you're going to push those that are, Furthest away, or were already furthest away, even further away. So we're doing a lot of work to try and ensure that that doesn't happen, and that we can we can still keep contact with those people, and we can still engage with those people, and uh, and deliver the skills that they need to uh, you know to to sort of keep them keep them in, in arms length, if you like, to uh, to skills and training. So that, that's really the challenge. But I think in, to answer your question, will we be delivering remotely going forward? Yes, we will in in small proportions, uh, but it certainly won't be uh, a change of business strategy going forward. You know, We'll do it where we can, but um, where we can get in the classroom and deliver face-to-face, then we absolutely uh, will be doing that.
0: And as well as sort of adapting, is there anything else that this experience of um, sort of being flexible amid the pandemic has actually taught you as the leader of a business?
1: Um. Yeah, it's it's taught me a lot, really. I mean, obviously, it's you know, it's it's the the first time I think anybody uh, has experienced a pandemic of, of this sort of magnitude. Certainly, you know, since since the uh, since the early nineteen hundreds, but um, it's uh, it, it's been a real eye opener in terms of how how fast we reacted, how fast we was able to react, um, and um, you know, how, how, how well the team coped with it. You know, there were some team members, some staff members who coped very, really, very really well, and there were some uh, staff members who, who didn't cope well at all. You know, we've, we've had to implement mental health provision in the business, and, you know, there's been, there's been a lot of lessons learned because it was very much in the early days, you know, early, early, sort of late March, it was very much every day as it came. Um, you know, we didn't know how long it was going to be. It was going to be going forward. Didn't know the severity of it. You know, we was very much changing uh, on a changing our methods and, and plans on a on a daily basis. So you know, the leadership and management team really came into their own in terms of implementation. Um, and uh, you know, we, we was able to push through and make the right decisions at the right times to to ensure that the business um, one was was. Sustainable and, and two was able to uh, to service um, our learners. So yeah, I mean, a lot a lot of lessons learned. Probably too many to mention, to be honest. But uh, yeah, certainly lessons that um, that mm. that will stay with us for a long time.
0: And of course you mentioned there as well that people do react to different circumstances differently let alone a crisis such as this so mental health and well-being has really come to the fore during this period of time as well I suppose I suppose yeah. that's been incredibly important isn't it from a leadership point of view having to manage that of your employees but also just looking after your own as well amid all of the stress that a pandemic brings with it
1: Yeah well I mean, we I've got a uh... I've got a vulnerable child myself—a three-year-old who was uh, a premature. He's got chronic lung disease, so you know we've been in isolation since the 13th of March personally, um, and they're still in isolation now. Um, You know, so we've we've had our own our own issues as a as a family in terms of in terms of that. I've got a 14-year-old as well at home who's you know can't go out see his friends, and you know he's going through that stage in his life, so you know that's been difficult. but it gives me a real grounding in terms of where our vulnerable learners are as well because, you know, if this pandemic was to, you know, if the lockdown was to stop suddenly um, this month or, or beginning of August, it's not really going to change anything for those vulnerable people, you know, until such time as, as a, a vaccine comes out or a, a cure comes out, then it's not really going to change anything for, for our vulnerable learners. You know, they're still going to be isolated, and We're still going to need to, To touch them, uh, those individuals with with skills and training and and how we do that is still going to be a challenge and and probably a challenge for the next six, maybe 12 months.
0: And thinking about that new normal and the challenges that that is going to uh, bring with it over the next 12 to 18 months, what is next on the horizon, Phil, for yourself and for Vocational Skill Solutions and what do you hope to achieve during that period?
1: Um, So, yeah, we're... we're, um, we're growing we've grown um again this year we're hoping to to grow over the next the next 12 months we've got ambitions to 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 build our contracts in in different regions in alternative regions grow the contracts that we've been successful in recently and and continue to deliver our services to to vulnerable adults and give them the skills that they need. Um, I think, you know, our, our biggest challenge is, is the economy. You know, what's going to happen with the economy? What's going to happen with, with skills? Uh, what's going to happen with employment? You know, and they're all unknowns at the moment. We've got ideas about the challenges that we're going to face, but at the moment they're unknown. And I think for us as a business, we just need to prepare ourselves to, uh, to be able to, to meet those challenges um, as they as they are identified regionally and nationally, so uh, so I think for us it's it's very much business as usual, um, and uh, and we you know we we deliver to, we continue to adapt and uh, and overcome the challenges that uh, that we are no doubt going to face, not only as a business but also as a as a national training provider delivering skills to unemployed
0: certainly going to be an interesting uh, time, as you say, yeah, uh, because we don't know exactly the way the economy is going to go. There's always the variable of a second spike um, in cases as well. So I think That's given right. that um, it's one thing, Phil, speculating as to what the future might bring, and it's another completely looking back and assessing what's happened when the time comes around, I think it would be fantastic to actually have you back on the programme with us in a few months' time, just to reassess where we're at at that point and just th- see how things at VSS are getting on behind the scenes as well.
1: Yeah, no, that would be great, yeah.
0: I think it'd be fantastic from a listener's point of view. um also. Well, um, it's been a real pleasure, Phil, having you join us on the, uh, the program today. I must say. And until we do touch base again, um, in future, do continue to take care and stay safe with all still going on because we're certainly not quite out of the woods with this one yet, for sure.
1: No, absolutely not. Yeah, we've, we've got a uh, we've got a long road ahead, I believe. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, everybody. Uh, everybody just needs to uh, to do their part and and help help the uh, the country back to. Uh, back to survival really back to back to its uh, its status quo well I think it's going to be quite a long uh, long journey for everybody and Mm. um, you know there's going to be a lot of work to be done uh, at not national and uh, regional uh, levels
0: For sure and for those listening into this even though restrictions are slowly beginning to lift do continue to be sensible because it really does make a real difference in saving lives. Um, I was speaking there to Phil Juniper, Managing Director of Vocational Skills Solutions and coming up next on the programme today I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary Lord Blunkett. Um, Lord Blunkett is today an active member of the House of Lords, Chairman of the Leaders Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland and of course a former Labour MP and Secretary of State. Um, During his political career, Lord Blunkett in fact became one of the most prominent politicians of his generation, holding a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years and he managed all of that in spite of being blind from birth. He was elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015 as Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough and I hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew Relish the opportunity to speak with him all of that is of course coming up next lord blanket welcome
2: thank you very much it's very good to be with you
3: um, well of course uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than covid19 uh, which uh, we must touch on um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going
2: Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks, those who uh, don't have um, declined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff, and of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important.
3: Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak... And you're absolutely right in a in a liberal uh democracy that we live in it's It's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government um,
2: well the the u k and um and the u s and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries have a very different hi- interest uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool.
3: Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react. uh, And Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs corporate meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages?
2: I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows, those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential cobra meetings what i was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. my experience with tony blair for the eight years i was in cabinet was that tony was a great delegator but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it so looking back i think boris himself probably thinks god i Wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today.
3: Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it would be interesting to see how that pans out. Um,
2: Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated, Mm -hmm. scientists, medics, people with behavioural science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centres in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh,
3: Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary?
2: Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counterterrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real on the back of that but it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics and of course we we saw SARS and other things emerging, I, I think it would. People have criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy sh- cut, uh, shut shutdown, um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS or what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I have put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, Mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well.
3: So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare.
2: Yes, and to do so on different levels. I think, again, thinking of... Thinking global but acting local, we need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime. Without creating even more anxiety, we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. the electoral government with the greatest majority and historic majority even greater than nineteen forty five which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in nineteen ninety seven when I joined the cabinet.
3: Now I know what your answer is going to be to this question but uh, indulge me. Um do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM?
2: Yes I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism
0: This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.